Well, if you are new and you don't know me, my name is Pastor Steve, and uh, I get the honor of bringing God's Word to us today. And we are also coming to our friends in Whitehall, our brothers and sisters there, via video as well. So you can join us. And uh, in your worship folder is a study outline. So go ahead and reach inside there and pull that out. And uh, I've got a lot of scripture I'm going to share with you today. And uh, I thought I'd start by just saying something I haven't said in a while, and that is we are a church who believes in God. We believe in God around here at New Life, and we believe that God is the creator of this universe, that he is awesome and majestic and powerful and real and personal, someone that you can know and have a relationship with, and uh, many of us do, and it's a blessing to our lives. We also are a church that believes that God revealed himself through creation, left his fingerprints everywhere in creation, that uh, the evidence of design that we see in nature as well as the human body and everywhere else you look points to a designer, intelligent designer who created it all, and we believe that God has revealed himself through that general revelation, but also through special revelation, which is the Bible, the Word of God, that God has told us things that he wanted us to know about himself and about this world and about ourselves and about his plan through his revealed word, the Bible. Uh, if you believe that like I do, would you say amen to that? Amen. And uh, you know, we're in the study in Romans, and the more I study Romans, the more I realize how much we wouldn't know about stuff if we didn't have the Bible. If we didn't have this book of Romans to tell us the truth about what's going on and how God thinks and, and what, what his plan is. I mean, Romans 6 that we're in today, it's just like, we wouldn't know any of this. We really wouldn't. It's not naturally discerned or apprehended. It had to be revealed from God. And I, for one, am grateful that he chose to bring that word to us and uh, I have the honor of sharing it with us today. Because of the weather last weekend, uh, or so many people, I mean, we were actually one of the very few churches that were open last weekend, but so many people found it difficult to make it. I'm going to incorporate some of the first section of Romans 6 that was spoken about last weekend, just because I know so many people missed it, okay? So I want to begin by reading the entire chapter. How about that? And uh, I'd like you to listen because this is God's word. And I want to remind you that, so this is Romans 6, and at the end of Romans 5, Paul had written the statement where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Some of you remember that. Where sin abounded, grace abounds even more. And that's kind of the backdrop for what we get into in Romans 6. So listen, listen now as I read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And I want you to know that is a very tame translation of the Greek, me genoito, could be translated, no friggin' way, or God forbid, or that's absurd. 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, no way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is one of those truths. There's no way we would know this if it wasn't revealed to us in the Scriptures. Our union with Christ, we who believe in Jesus, have been united with him in a spiritual union that almost defies imagination. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Amen? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also, the focus now turns to the people of God, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now our passage for today. What then? Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means, same phrase, no way. Ridiculous thought. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Literally, conform to the mold of the gospel. That's what that phrase means. You've been shaped by the gospel message. Verse 18, And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. So rich, so pregnant with truth. Now, if you're new to Christianity or if you're new to church, you might hear everything I just read and especially all that talk about slavery and be thinking, what in the world is that talking about? Even if you're a Christian, your head might be spinning because of how Paul, the apostle, says things here, which sounds a lot different than how we talk today, right? So I'm going to try my best to unpack this for us with God's help. Because I believe that understanding these truths presented in Romans 6 can change your life. That God wants to change your life and my life through the spiritual realities of Romans chapter 6. That that these taken to heart and absorbed into your life can cause you to be victorious day in and day out in the way that you live. This is a very famous chapter in the Bible, and it clearly breaks down into two sections. There's verses 1 through 14, that's one section, and then there's verses 15 through 23, and each of them starts with a question. We saw that, right? Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin or or literally keep on sinning because we're not under law but under grace? And these are really one and the same question. And it's a question that Paul could envision somebody blurting out in light of everything that he's written up to this point. Chapters 1 through 5 of Romans. And I think there are people who are posing this same question today. You phrase it like this. Well, if salvation is 100% by grace and not the result of anything we do, which Paul is contending for in chapter 4 and verse 5, If where sin increased, grace increases all the more, like he said in chapter 5, verse 20. If people really are justified before God only by faith in Jesus Christ and not by by trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. And if because of that, their eternal destiny, once they're justified by faith, is sealed... And they are guaranteed to miss the final judgment, as Paul also has claimed in chapter 5 and verse 9. Well then, if all that's true, wouldn't it seem to suggest that it doesn't really matter that much how people live their lives? I mean, if God's grace has already covered all of my sins, past, present, and future... And if any future sins I do commit, just give God more opportunity to showcase His grace and how forgiving He is, well then, why not just go out and sin up a storm? Right? Wouldn't that make God look really, 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 really gracious? Giving Him all those opportunities to forgive me again and again and again and again. Somebody might say it this way, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, it's a perfect match. Beautiful thing. There are some Christian people, maybe you're one of them, who have a real concern that preachers who preach a steady diet of grace week in and week out to their people are likely to end up with a church full of people who will just feel free to go out and party all night and get drunk and sleep around and do all that kind of stuff just to show how amazing God's grace is in forgiving them of all of that. 
they worry that the message of grace will end up increasing the sin quotient in the congregation and that holy living will become a distant memory, a thing of the past. In Paul's day, it was the Jews, the Jewish people, the religious Jews who would have registered concern about too much grace preaching because their entire religious system was built around what? The law and the works of the law and being good and avoiding the minutest transgression in order to be accepted by God. Even when some of those Jews came to faith in Jesus, that old way of thinking often clung to them. It can't really just be all grace, can it? I mean, it can't really be all faith. Don't we have to do something to get in with God and stay in with God? That's the thinking that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6. That if you preach grace alone, by faith alone, you can pretty much forget about seeing any holiness in God's people because it's going to lead them to have this kind of cavalier, ho-hum attitude about sin. No big deal. If you preach grace all the time, you're not going to hear about much repenting going on in the people of God if you're always just preaching grace, 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 grace. I'd like to make a couple of observations here, if I could. I would suggest to you that this is actually one way that a pastor can know that he's actually preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. That there will be criticism like this, that preaching grace is just going to lead to a lot more sinning. If the gospel message that somebody is teaching doesn't raise at least a few eyebrows, I would suggest that it might not be Paul's gospel that's being preached. I also would suggest that it doesn't appear to me here that Paul thought his message was being misunderstood. He doesn't try to walk anything back. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean that. He doesn't do that. He knew that the person who would make that charge, that grace will produce more sinning Christians, was actually coming to terms with the scandalous nature of the grace of God. They were getting it. They just weren't getting the transforming nature of that grace. I would also say that when people make that same assertion today, to me or to us, that grace provides a license for people to sin, I think we should answer like Paul did in verse 2 and in verse 15. No way. No, it does not. The reality of God's scandalous grace does not give permission for Christians to live however their flesh wants and to go out and sin up a storm. No friggin' way. God forbids such a thing. Grace is not a license. That notion is ridiculous. Our response, I think, should mirror Paul's response and his intensity, I think. No! No, no. I believe this question that's posed here by this imaginary antagonist, I guess you could say, in verses 1 and then again in verse 15, comes from somebody who has an inaccurate understanding of the nature of grace and an incomplete understanding of the nature of God's salvation. So I want us to step back for a minute, okay, and, and look at the bigger picture 
of this great salvation that God has provided by grace. I like to call it salvation in three acts, and there should be a little table there on your study outline, yes? Okay. Salvation in three acts. I don't know if you've been taught to think about salvation like this. This is how I think about it. There's the past, act one. There's the present, that's act two. And there's the future, still yet to come, that's act three. We could say from our understanding of salvation in the book of Romans that in the past, we were justified by faith. In the present, we are being sanctified by faith. And in the future, we will be glorified by faith. The first five chapters deal with justification. Romans 6 and 7 that we're in right now deal with this sanctification process. And Romans 8 deals with our future glorification. We say it this way. In the past... As a believer in Christ, I was freed from sin's penalty and power. Praise God. In the present, as a believer, I am being freed. It's a process. I am being freed from sin's practice. And one day, in the future, I will be freed from the very presence of sin when I shed this flesh and receive a new glorified body that's like Jesus' body. I want to give you kind of a Bible scholar's definition of these three big words, okay? Because we don't talk like this in our culture. Just, we don't talk about justification and sanctification and glorification. So let me try to describe them here. Justification is this. In an instantaneous act like that. God graciously forgives all the sins of those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ, like that. Wipes your slate clean. He alters their eternal destiny. He nullifies sin's legal claim to rule over them any longer, our former master. And he imputes Jesus' perfect record to their account. He credits Jesus' righteousness to them, to believers, as their righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He declares them to be righteous in his sight. And theologians like to call that alien righteousness because it comes not from ourselves. It comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from somebody else. That is justification and that is good news. But that's not all the good news because justification in the life of a believing person initiates and launches sanctification. Sanctification is not an instantaneous act. It is a lifelong process like this. That God, through the transforming power of His indwelling Holy Spirit, remember we welcomed the Spirit earlier, works in every justified believer to impart Jesus' righteous life into every area of their lifestyle, their hobbies, their work life, their marriage, their relationships, their entertainment life, their thought life, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions, every area. God works to impart Jesus' righteous life into every area so that it fills their life, bringing about increasing hatred for sin and increasing holiness of life. That's 
what sanctify means, sanctification, the process of becoming holy. We call this, or theologians call this, Jesus' active righteousness, being lived out in our lives every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We don't talk about this that much. This is also in an instant, like that. At the moment they see Jesus, because he's coming back, God will complete the sanctification process for all whom he has justified and worked to sanctify in this life, completing their transformation into Jesus' likeness, including providing a new glorified body like Jesus' body, which will have no remnant of sin remaining. No sin. This is sometimes called complete righteousness. Justification, sanctification, glorification. The Bible teaches all three. Salvation in three acts. And as to that glorification part, could I just encourage you with a couple of scriptures? 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now, right now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, who's that? Jesus, coming back for his people. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. (laughs) When you lock eyes with Jesus for the first time, you're going to be like him. Your sanctification will be completed in that moment. You will shed sin. Every last vestige and remnant and residue of sin will be gone. You won't battle the flesh anymore. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform, here it is, our lowly bodies. (laughs) That's humbling, isn't it? So that they will be like his glorious body, his post-resurrection body. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Those who have been justified will be sanctified, and those who are being sanctified will be glorified. One final one, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, through and through, another translation says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. If you are a justified believer in Jesus, you will be completely sanctified and glorified one day. God will do it. Good news. Maybe this is what Paul's Grace critics didn't really understand that God will finish what he began. All those who are justified will not fail to be sanctified and will not fail to be ultimately glorified. God pledged to do it, it says. He will surely do it. And later in chapter 8, Paul is going to say, no, no one's going to be lost along the way. Every single justified believer will be sanctified and will be glorified. You see, God's grace doesn't just forgive 
It doesn't just wipe our slate clean before God. It does that, but it does a lot more. God's grace also transforms us. Receiving God's grace offered to us in the gospel changes us at the core at a fundamental foundational level. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but there's more. The old you that loved to sin got crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 4, I read it. Or old man, that's not your dad. That's the old you, the old me, was crucified with Christ. I like to say that the old Steve is dead, buried, and out of the way. Dead, buried, and out of the way. That guy needed to die. I know, I lived with him. (laughs) He needed to be crucified. He needed to be raised. God raised us with Jesus to a new life, it says, as a new creation, a new you, a new me, a new Steve. There's a change, a fundamental change in our core identity when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. More happened when you were saved than maybe you, you realize. That's why that is often called conversion. Talk about people being converted. I had a young guy say to me just last week, Steve, I've now become a Christian. I've been converted. He used that term. He talked about the changes that he's seeing in his life since he put his faith in Jesus. There's been a fundamental transformation. He has a new nature now. And then the Holy Spirit, it says, the Bible does, comes and takes up residence within every justified believer and brings all sorts of new power and new resources to the converted person. Being justified by faith in Jesus Christ is not like getting cosmetic surgery. It's not a a, a surface alteration. It's more like getting a heart transplant and a legal pardon and a new citizenship in a new jurisdiction under a new ruler plus a boatload of other new resources. Like the Bible says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And God is the one who said, behold, I am making all things new, including you and me. Oh, the gospel is such good news. So all that forms the backdrop of Romans 6. Justification initiates sanctification. It has to. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. Listen, if you know somebody who claims to be a Christian, or if you are one who claims to be a Christian, but there's little or no desire for holiness in your heart, if you're comfortable with your sins, you're not bothered much by them, if you look in your heart and there's... there's There's hunger for a lot of things, but there's not much hunger for the Word of God or for God's fellowship or genuine love for God's people. If there's little or no passion for spreading God's message or joining God's mission of loving the people in this world, if you don't see those things in you or if a person's claiming Christianity and, and those evidences are not there, then the logical biblical conclusion is that that individual was never truly justified by faith. They remain lost. They're still a slave to sin. 
no, I've heard it. They may have attended church. They may have heard lots of sermons. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have filled out a little card. They may have even gotten baptized. They may have participated in communion, in the Lord's Supper. But the evidence, the validation, the proof of genuine justification by faith in Jesus is that there will be at least some measure of sanctification. Desire for holy living showing up in their life. It's the nature of true salvation to show up, to come out, to bear fruit. And so I'm hopeful that hearing that will affirm a lot of you and I'm hopeful that it will disturb some of you and unsettle you a little bit and get you thinking hard about where you really do stand with God. If you've never truly been saved, justified, converted, born again, I want you to know that today can be your day of salvation. Your day of being justified by faith. Wouldn't that be awesome? I hope to give you an opportunity when I close to trust fully in the grace of God shown to you in Jesus Christ so that you can know and experience for yourself God's wonderful salvation and forgiveness. As I said in Romans 6, there are two sections and both give reasons for we as believers to say no to continuing in sin. And to say yes to God and to obeying Him. First, he says in the first 14 verses, just to summarize, he says, Look, don't view God's abounding grace as permission to keep on sinning. That may seem logical to you after hearing the message of grace, but if you're viewing grace that way, you're viewing it wrongly. And then the explanation that Paul gives in verses 2 through 14 is basically says, you can't do that. You can't keep sinning as a Christian because you have a new life. You have a new life. Your old self died with Christ to sin. God raised you with Christ to live a brand new life. You have the life of God in you. The Greek word is zoe life, not bios life. Bios is what you get when you're born. Zoe is what you get when you're born again. God's life enters into you and that life in you will not allow you to continue in sin as a lifestyle as a habitual intentional deliberate lifestyle you can't again as i said for me i'm not the same person i was before christ i'm a new me transformed at a very fundamental level with new desires new ambitions new passions a new resident living in my heart new resources for leaving the old sin habits behind. It makes zero sense to continue deliberately sinning after I became a Christian. Really, to do so is an affront to the work of Jesus, who died to what? Set us free from sin. And then in verses 15 through 23, Paul continues and says, look, don't, don't view the absence of future condemnation by the law as permission to continue sinning now. By no means. And he says, not only do you have a new life, but you have a new Lord. You have a new master. 
that you now serve. Our previous obligation to serve that former master, sin, that was ended by Jesus Christ who purchased our freedom from that horrible enslavement. This is the teaching of the Bible. Listen, it's the testimony of Scripture that sin used the law of God to exploit our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, to stir up our sinful lusts and ambitions and pride, and then that same law condemned us as guilty sinners, right? But the Bible tells us Jesus took the lawbreaker's penalty for us. He served our death sentence, and we who believe are now out from under the condemnation of the law, and we're removed from sin's jurisdiction. Like the children of Israel of ancient times, who were liberated by the great deliverer whose name was Moses, liberated, right, emancipated from slavery in Egypt to the harsh Pharaoh, just like they were emancipated and liberated and freed from that domination, that enslavery, so we too have been emancipated from our cruel taskmaster, by our great freedom fighter, our liberator, the true and better Moses, whose name is Jesus Christ. He's our great freedom fighter, our liberator, and we are no longer slaves of sin. We've been released from that bondage in order, listen, to be bound to our new master, Jesus himself, and to serve him, right? through righteous living each and every day. This new service is not oppressive. It's a glad servitude that we've been given, for Jesus is a gracious master, right, who loves us, who gave himself for us, who knows what's best for us. This theme of being liberated from bondage and being having our jurisdiction transferred Reiterated several times, verse 18 says, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You were in this jurisdiction, now you're in this jurisdiction. You were under this ruler, now you're under this ruler. You see, in the biblical worldview, everybody is a slave to somebody. <laughs> everybody is a slave to a master. And the way Paul forms this argument, the way he frames it, is that everybody is a slave to either sin or righteousness. There isn't, there isn't any Switzerland. There isn't any neutral ground. A person is bound to obey the selfish impulses of the sin that is within them, or they've been released from that slavery to a new servitude bound to obey God. That's what freedom is, by the way. Freedom is the freedom to serve your new master. It's not the freedom to do anything that the flesh wants. So let me read this final section again. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one to whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin, here it is, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul was using an analogy or an example from his world, the Roman Empire, where slavery was part of daily life. It wasn't a black-white thing. It was a rich-poor thing. It was the wealthiest aristocrats who would hire servant slaves to do their work for them in exchange for food and shelter and clothing and that sort of thing. That's why Paul says I'm using a, uh, an analogy here to help you understand, speaking in human terms, middle of 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, that's like everything, every part of your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, to being holy. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to get very practical now, okay? I want you to think about your own life for a moment. I want you to draw a circle around yourself in your mind and just don't think about others. Think about you. Think about your life. Can you identify that sin area in your life that you are most plagued by? One passage of the Bible calls it a besetting sin. What is that temptation that you're most likely to cave into? What is that, that sin area that you're most likely to give into again and again that constantly plagues you? Verse 21 talks about the things that we're ashamed of. That's what I'm talking about. That thing in your life that you're, you're ashamed of. Got it? Don't say I don't have one. There's a thing called, I've heard called holy self-talk. Holy self-talk. Now, I believe it's a scriptural notion. Because we all talk to ourselves anyway. Some of you scare people because you talk to yourself when others are around. But what I'm talking about is, is intentionally giving yourself a pep talk. You find this in the Psalms all the time, right? David talked to him, his, his own soul. <laughs> this, is, this is strongly speaking to yourself words of truth in that moment when you're on the brink of giving in again, of caving in again, losing the battle again. I want to challenge you to give yourself a pep talk the next time that moment is approaching. Whether it's anger, out of control, anger and rage, or, or selfish ambition, or pride, or lust. In that moment when you're just about ready to give in again, I'm going to challenge you to give yourself a pep talk. And you might say, I wouldn't know what to say to myself in that moment. Well, I want to help you. So on the back side, it says, holy self-talk. Five gospel truths to tell yourself when you're on the brink of sinning. That could be helpful, don't you think? If you had it, 
with you in that moment. This is what I tell myself. As I'm considering giving in to that thing, right? Uh, Steve, that's not the new you. Amen. That's not the new you. The old you would have done that, but that guy is dead, buried, and out of the way. Remember? Crucified with Christ. You were raised with Jesus to a new life. Do you really want to go back to that old life? I ask myself that question. Do you really want to go back to that old life? That's not the new you. That's not who you really are now. It's who you used to be, but that guy died. The second part of your pep talk to yourself, hey, it's not just a sin, it's a slavery. Because we, we can uh, kind of minimize it, can't we? No big deal. Don't be fooled, Steve. <laughs> There's more bondage ahead if you give in now. Do you really want to be in chains again? Do you really want to put yourself back under that nasty old master and be enslaved to him again? It's not just a sin, Steve. It's slavery. Third, this is good. Think about the fruit. Think about the fruit, Steve. Hit the pause button and remind yourself how ashamed you felt after the last time you gave in. That's what Paul said, right? You were ashamed of the fruit. Do you really want to go through that again? Think about the fruit. When you blew up at that person, when you lost it, and all that stuff came out of your mouth, you know, and you just exploded all over them. Remember how you felt about that afterwards? Remember the fruit of it? Remember how, what it did to your relationship? A fourth piece of this pep talk. Jesus offers more. Jesus offers more, and he's worth more. Doesn't your closeness to Jesus, your tightness with Jesus, mean more to you than this? Do you really want to forfeit his joy for the promise of a fleeting moment of pleasure? good for those who struggle with giving into viewing pornography really is it really going to be that great doesn't jesus offer more do you really want to forfeit the closeness you've had with jesus for that and then this jesus died to set you free from that i think we need to hear ourselves say these things to ourselves steve jesus died he came and suffered and bled and died to set you free from that when you believe the gospel jesus broke the chains that bound you to that sin you're free it cost him his life to liberate you so that you could serve him he rose again to be your strength don't you want to call out to him right now to strengthen you to say no so i want you to have this and i encourage you to keep it with you in a prominent place or maybe fold it up and put it in your purse or your wallet and Remind yourself of the, of the truths of the gospel in those moments when you're being overwhelmed with temptation, overwhelmed with that sense, I need to give in to this again. If you will say these things to yourself in that moment, out loud, in your, so you hear yourself saying it, I guarantee you it will strengthen you. It will have an impact in your life. And you will be cooperating 
It's God's sanctifying work in you to make you holy. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? No way. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? We've been set free from sin, free to serve a new master. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm still asking you to take that inventory, that personal inventory. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you to be honest, okay? How many would say, Steve, I have a sin area in my life that I know hasn't produced good fruit, and I'm convicted about it. I need to repent of it once again, and this time, I need to apply these gospel truths to my life. So please pray for me, Steve, that I will take this to heart, what you've just taught, and tell myself these truths on a regular basis. If that's you, would you lift your hand? Many, many of us. Put your hands down. I am going to pray for you in just a moment. I wonder if there's, there are people in the room who would say, Pastor Steve, actually, I'm not sure that my lifestyle gives evidence that I've ever been set free from sin, that I'm a true believer. I don't know that I've ever been justified by faith in Christ, but I want to be. Please pray for me. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to become a Christian. Right now I'm going to turn, for our Whitehall congregation, I'm going to turn it over to our pastor there for a time of response. But right here in this room, I'm going to ask you to prepare your hearts for communion. If you are not yet a born-again Christian, I urge you to put your trust in Jesus, even tonight before you come and partake. If there's something in your life that is plaguing you, that you know Jesus is calling you to repent of, I urge you to do that before you partake. Maybe there is a person that you're at odds with, you're estranged from, and it's not right, something's not right between you. You know, Jesus talked about leaving your gift at the altar and going and making that right first, and it occurs to me that that may be the case with somebody in this room, that before you come and partake of the Lord's table, there's someone you need to make a phone call to. If they're in this room, you need to go to them and say, hey, let's, can we go together? We need to talk and pray first. Could I just challenge you to be reconciled to a brother or a sister that you're at odds with before partaking so that you can come with a pure heart? Here's how Paul prepared a church for communion. He said, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so, in an examined state, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we truly judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32. So Lord Jesus, as we approach now these elements that represent your body crushed for us and your shed blood, as we take that wafer and dip it into the cup and then partake, would you meet us there in a special way? Will you remind us that you came for our cleansing, for our purification, for our sanctification, for our holiness? And before we come, may we examine ourselves now and be clean before you, I pray. In your precious name, amen.